Business Anxiously with Amy and Lisa. Now here are your hosts, Amy and Lisa. Hi, I'm Lisa. And I'm Amy. And this is Anxiously, the podcast where we talk about all the things that make us anxious. So Lisa, how are you? You know, I'm doing all right. I had such an exciting day the other day because I got to see you. (laughs) It was exciting. We got to hug and see each other in person. And we realized how long it had been. Months. Like many months. Yeah. We got so used to being in our separate bubbles and being isolated from people outside of our immediate family units. And it really brought home how much I missed seeing you, seeing other friends in person and having that face-to-face contact and being able to hug. And I missed you. I know. I missed you too. It is so funny that, yeah, we talk all the time and yet it's still not the same. But what I also loved is that it felt like no time had passed, like even though it had been like so many months. It was just like, oh, it's another day when I'm getting (laughs) Starbucks with Lisa and we're walking and talking about our lives. And to me, that's the mark of like a great friendship is that you can just like pick up where you left off or that you don't, you know, have to constantly like see each other or be in touch. There's this wonderful kind of solid base of friendship that will always be there. So for me, in some ways, the pandemic was interesting and in that like it made me actually appreciate a lot of my friendships with you obviously and other friendships where I wasn't seeing them but we were texting or on zoom and it was just a nice reminder that you don't have to necessarily see someone in person to maintain the friendship. I guess the pandemic in a way made it a lot easier to maintain friendships. The stakes were lower because nobody could go out. Right. We didn't have the pressure of making plans. I feel a lot of the time I have so many obligations with home, with work, running from work to pick up the kids. And it's easy to feel very stretched and having to just be at home with my family all the time and not thinking about making plans with people did feel like a little bit of a relief and in a very sad way. (laughs) No, I think that's totally true. And I think there is something a little bit stressful now that things are slowly opening back up. Like as exciting as it is to know that I can, I'm fully vaccinated, I can see friends again for dinner. It's hard. It's like a big readjustment. And part of me wonders, like, have we forgotten how to do friendships from normal times? It's an interesting question to think about. You know, Liel's Israeli and we've spent a lot of time in Israel and we have a lot of friends in Israel. And I see like how friendships there operate. The bonds are sort of somehow much stronger and deeper. Maybe it's because of certain shared experiences, but there's almost like a more of a familial bond to those friendships than happens here in this country. I can go weeks and weeks without seeing some of my closest friends. And I hate that. I don't want to see my closest friends just once or twice a month. I want to have those really strong connections where we're in our lives every day, where we're like family, family by choice. And it just gets hard when life is so busy. And there's something a little bit sad about that. I do think it is very American that we're siloed in our little bubbles. I mean, obviously COVID heightened it so much, but I think there's a lot of focus on the nuclear family and it is different priorities maybe, which I agree. I don't know if that makes for the best quality of life. 
not having the kind of open door friends or family set up. I feel like people are very sequestered. You know, what is it? What's that Robert Frost quote? Good fences make good neighbors. I feel like that's so American. Like everyone's in their little home. I worry that something is lost. Like I I think maybe I would be happier with, you know, again, I I have wonderful friends, but yeah, it's, we don't see each other all that much, even in normal times, because I think people are so busy (laughs) doing what, who even knows, just stuff, (laughs) life. Yeah, it's just life. It's life. Yeah. You know, I have this fantasy that we'll move to the country together and have houses next door (laughs) to each other. (laughs) I know. But, you know, that makes me think about traditional Judaism in religious circles where everybody has to go to shul to pray every day. They see each other every Shabbat. Like, Community is such a primary focal point. It's it's like the organizing principle of Jewish life. You have to see your friends at least once a week. You have to see your community at least once a week. Like that's, that's such a rich way to live, I think. It's true. I love the idea of like Shabbat dinners with lots of yeah. people over. And maybe a good goal is to do more of that. Because I do think we get so stuck in our patterns and coming home and eating in front of Netflix or whatever (laughs) and not opening. But, you know, it is thinking back to, let's say, college where I met a lot, like a lot of my close friends now are friends from college. And yeah, in college, it was very easy, I found, to make and maintain friends because you were living with them and you were constantly in each other's lives. Like, I find that in adulthood, it's harder to make friends because you're not kind of naturally in an, except for work where we met, you're not naturally in an environment where you're seeing someone every day. Totally. I I really agree. From childhood, I have all of this social anxiety. Like when I was a kid, I was really, really painfully shy. And some of the girls I grew up with weren't very nice. And I was bullied a little bit. And it's really like, affected the way I approach social situations and I feel like I clam up and I get so nervous and anxious and like it's so hard for me to enter new settings and open up and make friends and it's something I crave I really crave these really deep close friendships so that's interesting that you carry some of those insecurities from childhood I mean I think we all do that enormously especially I find when it comes to friends I was shy, but I also had kind of a bad experience where a really toxic friendship, which I feel like that word gets overused, but this really was that in elementary school where my so-called best friend decided to be really evil to me at one point and just was really kind of tormenting me in a way that only kids can, I think. And yeah, it was really upsetting. And I think, you know, I got past it, but I think it caused me to this day, I think, still sometimes have trust issues with friends and worry that, are they going to be mad at me? Am I going to, you know, do something to kind of tip the scales? And I feel like the hallmark of a good friendship is, like, you shouldn't have to worry about those things. Like, you can have conflict or, you know, you can have problems, but, like, you'll get through it. And there should always be that sort of sense of security. So that's something that I I don't think about it a ton, but I think it, like, lives in my mind the way all our kind of (laughs) traumas from childhood do. Yeah. I still also worry that, you know, I'll do something to make a friend mad at me. Like, I've asked you if you were upset with me before. And it's always funny because I'm always like, what? Like, which shows that, like, our, like, own anxieties and paranoias are so much bigger in our own mind. I know, you're like, are you mad at me? I'm like, why? Like, where where is that? No, but yeah, I feel the same way. Like, with you, with every friend, I'm like, oh, no, I hope I didn't offend them or... 
And I think there's some people that don't worry about that stuff. Like I admire people. (laughs) I think it is a common fear, like this feeling that friendships are like tenuous in some way. But again, they, I think if you have good friends, it's not, it shouldn't be a rational fear. But for me, I think it does go back to my childhood, not to make this a total therapy session. but (laughs) Well, I love that fantasy of us living somewhere together and hanging out together all the time, as we like to call it, our golden girls fantasy, like (laughs) moving to Florida and hanging out all day. (laughs) And fittingly, we have the perfect guest to talk to us about golden girls and friendship. Yes, luckily, we have H. Allen Scott to join us. He's a writer and comedian who's appeared on The Jimmy Kimmel Show, Ellen, CNN, Fusion, and MTV. And he's written for TV Land, Vice, Fusion, Out Magazine, Newsweek, and Nerdist. H. Allen is the subject of the forthcoming documentary, Latter-day Jew, and he co-hosts Out on the Lanai, a Golden Girls podcast. He also co-hosts You're Making It Worse with his two best friends. And now here's our conversation with H. Allen. Welcome, H. Allen, to Anxiously. Oh my God, thank you for having me. I love it. I'm anxious, but yet also very excited. <laughs> That's how we feel all the time, so you fit right in. I love that. <laughs> anxious and excited. <laughs> Well, we are excited to talk to you. You're the host of a podcast about one of the most popular shows ever about friendship, The Golden Girls. Lisa and I are huge Golden Girls fans. I watched it with my grandma. It was like some of my fondest memories, and I still watch it. It holds up wonderfully. What is it about the friendship between Blanche, Rose, Dorothy, and Sophia that you think endures and is so popular? One overall reason why the friendship is so enduring and why it is so appealing to, I think, Jews, to women, to marginalized people, queer people in general, why the Golden Girls resonate so much is because they're all kind of outsiders. You know, all four of them put together have been shunned in one way or another by society because of the circumstances of their life. You know, Dorothy is divorced and single, older, you know, man left her. She lives with her mother. I mean, it's just like she's definitely an other in that way. And then you have Blanche, who's sort of very sexualized, but at an older age, which was not a popular thing, and still in a lot of ways is not a popular thing. And then there's Rose. And these four women kind of have come together to sort of form this non-traditional family. And I think that's something that, like, people respond to, because especially if you're marginalized in some way, you got to take something from that. You, you want to feel like you belong in some way. And I think they kind of allowed people to feel included in a way. And I think that's why it's resonated so much, the friendships. What wisdom do you think these four women can impart to us about friendship? The best piece of wisdom is an interview that B. Arthur gave to the Television Academy like years ago, where she was like, the premise of this show is great because people can respond to the characters and everything. But in reality, it is a horrible idea to move in with your three friends when you're in your 60s. The reality of them living together like that probably would be a disaster. <laughs> so I think one reality is don't do that. <laughs> That's one thing that I took from her. But the other thing is, I think that the main thing you can take from it is this idea of your family, the family you come from doesn't necessarily have to be your only family. You know, there's there's this whole concept of like, and I mean, as a queer person, this is something that definitely resonates with me, the whole idea of sort of chosen family. And and even just as a Jew, I converted to Judaism. So like, there is also a chosen family in that I am 
choosing Judaism in a way. They chose each other, and they chose to create this sort of family friendship. They're there for each other. There's an episode, a really great episode, where they agree to sort of, like, help each other out with money or something, and then they agree in the end, they're like, we're just going to be there for each other. Like, if one gets sick, we'll all three chip in and do this, and that's just sort of what family does. And that's really what friendship's about, is just sort of making sacrifices and doing things for the people that are close to you in your life, and, and the Golden Girls really sort of taught us that in a lot of ways, I think. So you grew up gay in a religious community. Did you rely on friends to kind of help you growing up? Like, what was your relationship with your family like? And then how did that translate into your friendships? Friends. I, shocker, was a very showy kid. (laughs) And so (laughs) I often, and this is going to sound like, I'll admit it, I was definitely an arrogant kid in that, like, I'm from Missouri and I'm from the sort of, like, Kirkwood, which is like a suburb of St. Louis, I didn't really need to rely on friends because I thought a lot of the people in my school were just slow. I know that sounds horrible, but I, the oftentimes I actually, like I remember as a kid watching television and movies and all these things and just sort of being like, well, I get why this is cool. And these people clearly don't get why this is cool. So thus they are not cool. And I just am biding my time until I can get out of this town and find the people who get why this is cool. And so that's sort of what I did. So I had friends, yes. And I have great friends that, I have, like, two friends from high school that I'm still great friends with to today, and they were a great source of comfort. But I didn't really rely on friends in that way that I think a lot of sort of younger queer people or people who come from isolated religious communities sometimes do, just because I kind of used my humor to sort of be my own friend in a way. I was able to shield a lot of maybe the bad things because I was confident and funny, and I was confident in my abilities, and so I just kind of did my own thing, and then moved to Chicago as soon as I could. What role do friends play in your life now? Oh my God, what role don't they play? It's weird because like now it's kind of shifted. You know, when I was a kid, I was very reliant on myself and I was my own friend because I I really just didn't like what a lot of my other peers were interested in then. You know, they were wearing Birkenstocks and I really wanted to wear Dansko clogs because I thought they were fashionable and they gave me a little bit of a rise. (laughs) And... Nobody got it, and I got made fun of for it endlessly, but I still wear them to this day because I love the rise. But now, because I'm in the communities where people like the same things that I do and are interested in the same things and do the same things, I have so many friends who, friends in my drag community, friends in my comedy community, on my my other podcast that I do, You're Making It Worse, my two best friends, Brent Sullivan and Elliot Glazer, great comedians who we have this sort of shared interest. And so now friends are like the backbone of everything I do. They're the backbone of my work. They're the backbone of my life. They're a constant presence in my life. It's kind of interesting how it shifted as an adult. I think a lot of people though feel that it's hard to make and maintain friendships as a grown-up, you know, when you're not in school with someone every day. What do you think? Do you agree or do you not find that to be an issue with you? Or do you have any tips for people about making friends? I do think there is a unique separation between straight people and queer people in this situation. In that, straight people, no offense, I don't know you guys' background, but I'm venturing to say that probably most of the listeners are of the heterosexual proclivities. I think that straight people sometimes go in a direction of you get married, you get in a relationship, you have children, and that is your unit. That is what you do. And sort of that is your life. And the friend circle becomes somewhat smaller because the life becomes more intense or responsibilities or whatever, whatever. And queer people don't often necessarily have that. And and I also think queer people 
pride the idea of friend family. You know what I mean? That, that we really do make up that because it is a really important thing in our history of, yeah, you come from a family, but you also have this other family that is so important to you. And so for me, it's easier to maintain friendships in my adult life. I feel like my friendships have thrived in my adult life and I rely on them more. And I also think Part of my background of like being sort of an isolated kid who just sort of marched to the beat of my own drum allowed me to have really healthy, responsible adult friendships because I don't need to be with my friend all the time. I don't need to see them every single week. Like I can, you know, I have my my best friend Lori who she lives in New York and I never see her, but I feel like I'm constantly talking to her. I'm constant. There's a constant communication happening. And so it hasn't been difficult for me as an adult to maintain friendships. I will say COVID, though, did impact the types of friendships I wanted to have going forward. I didn't want to have or feel the responsibility of having all these sort of acquaintances. You know what I mean? There's this one friend who, they were never even a friend. They're <laughs> like an acquaintance of another friend, and they constantly want to like do dinner, you know, once every couple of months. And, and before COVID, I would entertain the idea of going to dinner with this person because my other friend would be there. And I'm now like, well, no, I'm just not going to reply to that person. I'm not going to reply to the dinner invitation because I don't care about this person. And I'm sure they're lovely. There's no interest there. So why would I pursue that more? And I think COVID's kind of helped me look at my network and sort of like slim it down a little bit. Yeah, like really distill. Yeah, there's something to that. I don't know why, because you would think after the pandemic, you'd want to like see everybody and like, you know, lick their faces. But no, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to be very selective on who I lick. <laughs> I mean, what about you guys? Have you found maintaining friendships in adult life to be difficult? I don't necessarily find maintaining friendships hard, but I find making f new friends hard. But I was also very much an introvert. And unlike you, as a child, I wasn't secure in my isolation. Mm. And a lot of that anxiety colors how I approach friendships and, and other people and, and just like social situations in general. Yeah, definitely. I feel a lot of guilt around the fact that I, and I do think COVID kind of impacted this in different ways. Like I feel like I have a lot of friends that, yeah, because like some of them have kids and we're all kind of siloed with our partners or families or whoever. So we don't, you know, necessarily have time to see each other. And then I feel guilt about that and that creates, you know, pressure. But as you were saying, like, I do actually think that, that like a good friendship, you don't need to see them or talk to them all the time. Like it's always just kind of there. As a parent, I always feel the tension between, you know, the selfish desire to be with my friends or to do things that make me feel like a person and not just someone's mom and and then you know wanting to be a good parent i think it makes you a better parent when i was a kid i feel like well my parents really didn't have friends outside the home we were very much an insular family that there was like that was the unit and there was nobody else that really came in but i see friends of mine who have kids now and like if i would have had if my mom would have been friends with like a random gay guy that just would come over sometimes or like a single friend or like a couple that lived whatever didn't have kids like if i had that exposure to that sort of different ideas of what the future could be then maybe i don't know I, the future because i remember when i left home i definitely was like i don't know what the i know i'm not going to marry a woman so like <laughs> that's what i know but i had no roadmap of like how my life could be and I constantly always kind of thought oh I'm going to be alone like I'm going to be I'm going to be cool and independent and like whatever but I'm going to be alone 
because there was no examples of like an alternative way of living. And so like parents who actually have friendships with people who are different and not just parents who have kids, I think it's really good for the kids. I think it's good for the kids to see that because it just makes the future seem a lot more open. That's a really good point. Talking about what makes a good friend and going back to Golden Girls and like their snarkiness. There's a school of thought that like being a good friend means you can say anything to your friend and be brutally honest. But I feel like I tend to always err on the side of never wanting to hurt anyone's feelings. So what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you, what do you feel like makes a good friend? Like, is it being honest or is it being protective? I think when people talk about being honest or like keeping it real, it's just like an excuse to be like a dick. You know what I mean? Like people use other words to mask inappropriate behavior just because they maybe are embarrassed or know that the behavior maybe is wrong. And the real sort of like friendship and truth in a friendship comes with knowing your friends so well that you know how they're going to react to something that maybe you need to say. And so you know then how to say it. You know what I mean? You know you know the best way of going about saying it. And if there is no good way about going about saying it and someone's not going to have like a life-threatening thing happen from it, well, then you shouldn't be saying it. There's no reason to say it then. If you know that the friend is going to react in a way that is going to be emotionally disturbing to them and it isn't something that needs to be said, like, just don't say it. I have a friend that I'm thinking of now who they can be very eager when it comes to love, if you know what I mean. They're one of those people that will say something like, you know, oh, yeah, we've been dating for eight months. When in reality, like, they met on Tinder eight months ago, but the first date was, like, maybe, like, whatever. It's, like, elongated for, like, an irrational reason. So they're very eager for love, which I think is a wonderful quality. But I also am very sort of, like, cautious because when they when the love eventually ends or it doesn't go the direction that they want it to go, it's devastating. It is, like, a heartbreaking thing. And I'm definitely one of those more reasoned, rational people who just sort of, like— well, things go the way they go because they're that way. And so I don't want to tell this person not to, like, love love because that's a wonderful thing. You know what I mean? Gail King says every morning on CBS This Morning, she loves love, and I love love too. But whenever I have to talk to this friend and I I sort of – he's telling me about these things and he'll say, like, oh, this person, he's, just, he's a genius. He's so – he's just insane how smart he is. I'm like, well – He's smart, and that's a good thing, but maybe don't tell him that. That can be all-consuming for someone and almost too much to live up to. So, like, just be chill. Like, just chill. So I'm there to, like, say, be chill and to suggest alternatives. And I don't, I could be a dick and be like, this is going to end badly because I know it's going to end. This is going to end badly. But no, instead I'm going to be like, okay, I'm going to try to tamp the brakes a little bit. And then when the end maybe comes, hopefully not, but when it does come, I'll know how to respond to it. And hopefully he won't be distraught because of it. I think that's really good advice. Yeah. Chill out, everyone. <laughs> that is always good advice. Do you ever get anxious about being a good enough friend? No. I get anxious about maybe being too good of a friend. Sometimes I'll want to be very helpful. You know what I mean? And because, like, I'm definitely one of those people that, like, if I have something that can help someone else or if I have an ability to make something easier for someone else, I want to do that. Like, I physically... That's sort of, like, the... I guess mom and me is like, I really want to like do that for people. And I can't, you can't do that all the time because it can be overwhelming and it stress people out and like, it can be a lot for people. And I am a fixer. I'm, I'm a fixer in the way that like, I, I feel like I'm smart and I know how, how things sometimes work. And so like, there are things like moments where I'll want to help a friend with something and I'll offer or suggest these things. And sometimes it can be a little bit too much and you have to let the friend make mistakes in my mind. 
and <laughs> let them learn from those things and not fix everything. That is very true. I, I feel like I also want to fix everything. What does make you anxious then? You were saying you're an anxious person. What makes me anxious? Okay, there's an elevator in my building, right? There's two elevators at the banks and one goes down to the garage and one only goes down to the first floor, which I think is the most ridiculous. Whoever built this building is an idiot. And I, just right now, we had to we had to ship off something to FedEx, right? And the cutoff was 5.30 and I knew I had to be here with you, lovely women, at six o'clock. And so I was like going through the schedule of my day and I'm very organized in my schedule. And the elevator, I got the lobby elevator, not the parking garage elevator. And it was like minutes that were going to be gone. And I knew we had to get this thing shipped off before the cutoff at 5.30 and I had to get back here by six. And this elevator, the one that I hate came and that makes me more anxious than literally, which is the smallest, dumbest thing. But I can literally go insane if I get the lobby elevator. Like, (laughs) insane. (laughs) And I start looking at my watch, and I start stressing out about things, and I start thinking about, well, it's 5.30 and it's L.A., so there's going to be traffic. But I know we're only going six blocks, but still six blocks in L.A. can be four hours, you know? Like, you never know in this city. And, yeah. That's that's probably my biggest anxiety right now is that elevator. It's like a metaphor for <laughs> all the things we can't control. It really is. And what else makes me anxious? My cat makes me anxious. I mean, there are like little things like the health of my cat makes me very anxious. Constantly thinking about death, that makes me anxious too. I think about that a lot. Um, mustard. The color mustard <laughs> on television makes me really anxious actually because I find <laughs> it to be a really sort of like, like it's a beautiful color in person, but on television it's actually a very disturbing color and I think it makes people look sickly. It's hard for me even to watch someone wearing anything mustard colored on television. I swear to God, that seems like this is a joke, but it's not. It really makes me anxious. I can't. I feel bad for the people. I like want to send them an email and be like, don't wear mustard again. <laughs> now I feel like I want to go, well, first of all, I want to go back and rewatch all of Golden Girls while listening to your <laughs> yeah. podcast. But I also now want to pay attention to people wearing mustard. On <laughs> it's not yellow. It's mustard. Even though I get it's a part of the yellow family, it's a yellow-orange moment. I find it just really unflattering. Only on television, not in person. Maybe it's the pixels. I don't know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but something happens and it makes me very... Very anxious. Well, thank you so much, H. Allen. This was amazing. So much fun. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. And stay golden. That was such a fun, fabulous conversation. I want to be H. Allen's friend. He's just awesome. I loved talking to him. (laughs) I want to just like sit with him on the lanai and have (laughs) drinks and talk about Golden Girls and TV and everything in the world and friendship. Me too. I also want to now go back and rewatch all of Golden Girls. Oh, me too. (gasps) We should have a viewing party. Oh, yes. And now we can like actually sit in the same room (laughs) together and watch TV. So exciting. I love that plan. So speaking of plans, I'm going to be a good friend and keep to my word from last week. I am holding you accountable. (laughs) Did you keep a journal and meditate? Oh, my external incentivizer. Yes, thank you. In fact, I have been keeping a journal with my daughter, Lily. We've been doing it together every night, and it's been wonderful. It's like a lovely way to sort of reflect on the day and to bond, and it's been really special. 
And (laughs) I had done the Transcendental Meditation course years ago, and I used to practice meditation daily for a long time. And then I just like life got in the way and I stopped. So I did it one day this past week. And I don't know what I did wrong, but when I finished, I was so wound up and anxious. I had to take out the clonopin. <laughs> Wait, you had to take a clonopin after <laughs> meditating. That is yeah. the best thing I've ever heard. And that exemplifies us in this show. Very anxiously. <laughs> <laughs> it made you more anxious? I don't know what happened, but yeah. I mean, that's okay. I've probably like brought up stuff. I don't know. Every time I've tried to meditate, I've become <laughs> I'm just so aware of all my thoughts. I like, I don't know. It, it, it's intense, but keep me posted. I am, I'm proud of you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you for checking in. Yes. Yes. So friends, this is our 18th episode and it is our last for this first season. We're going to take a little break for the summer. We're very sad to leave you, but we'll be back for season two. But this means that we have evenings free to hang out with each other. And I know this will be one of my ways to relax and feel good is getting to see you more frequently. Yes, I was going to say for my thing that makes me feel less anxious this week, it will be getting to have dinner with you and yeah, maybe watching Golden Girls Yay. and <laughs> just vegging out. And yeah, I want to thank all the listeners and all the amazing feedback we've gotten from this family and friend network we've created with Anxiously. So thank you all. Thank you for being a friend. <laughs> oh, Golden nice, Girls. nice. <laughs> This has been an amazing experience. It's been, I feel like it's been such a wonderful thing for our friendship, and it certainly made me feel less anxious. So I'm very grateful to you, Amy. I'm very grateful to our producers, Robert and Sarah and Josh and Stephanie and Liao. And to all of you listening, thank you. Yes, thank you so much. It really was kind of the perfect way to stay in touch as friends over this pandemic. I mean, again, we were in touch anyway, but this was such a a nice creative thing to do together and explore our fears. But of course, since we have so many fears, we (laughs) we have more to come, but yeah, stay tuned. And as always, Lisa, I know you get it. I know you get it too. And all of you listening, I know you get it as well. And we hope you'll continue to get it. Thank you. Bye. Anxiously is brought to you by Tablet Studios. Our producers are Josh Cross, Sarah Fredman Ader, and Robert Scaramuccia. Our music is by the best band in the world, Low Cut Connie. Please rate and review us on iTunes so more people can find us. It really helps. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at anxiouslypod. And if you have feedback or questions about the show, email us at anxiously at tabletmag.com. For more information about the show, head to tabletmag.com slash anxiously and check out all of Tablet's podcasts at tabletmag.com slash podcasts. See you later.